Climate enthusiasts, welcome to another episode of the Green Finance Podcast. This is Julia Chutina, senior reporter at Tearsheet. I'm super excited to announce our upcoming Banking on the Planet conference. We'll be talking everything green finance and the intersection of climate risks, sustainability, ESG investments, and banking, bringing together leaders from the banks set out to make a difference and the fintechs and technology providers bringing us closer to an easier future. So join us for free virtually at Banking on the Planet Conference 2022 on July 26th for a day of critical dialogue on the responsibility bestowed upon the financial industry and the players rising to the challenge. One of the speakers that will join us at the conference is Matthias Wikström, the CEO of The Economy, who is also my guest today on this podcast episode. The Economy provides data services that helps businesses monitor and assess their environmental footprint based on transactional and financial data. Consumers can find out the footprint of their lifestyle choices, brands can calculate their product's footprint, and they're also working to develop a tool that enables banks to aggregate the information provided to their consumers. This is really important because it means helping banks report on their ESG impact by harnessing the data and insights from their total consumer credit portfolio. Overall, it's a really cool company originating in Sweden and really taking the lead in European climate tech, but it operates globally and it's also working with many US banks as well. And me and Matthias had a really awesome conversation, so tune in for more on climate data, how it helps us understand our impact on the world, and how the financial system can facilitate a net zero economy. Well, thank you very much. It's a very interesting uh, part of the market, and we see this evolving quite rapidly. Uh, the economy's backstory is that uh, in 2015-2016, we developed the world's first methodology to put the carbon intensity to each and every transaction made using your payment card or credit card. And since then that has developed into a diverse set of tools and uh, impact methodologies aiming to engage users in everyday climate action, but also to make use of the efficiencies within the financial services system, making the banks the hub for actionable insights in regard of climate impact for every user. Awesome. You mentioned efficiencies. Um, what Can you give us more details on that and how can we leverage uh, some of the technologies in the banking and finance sector to provide such insights uh, related to carbon or you know emission footprint? Yeah, so I think that the financial services platforms of today, the, the digital banks of today has really shaped a an opportunity for a safe and secure environment, uh, quite heavily regulatory driven, of course, uh, on which you can have conversations around any kind of financial impact. Uh, replicating that to also carry information around climate impact, I think we can make use of the same efficiencies. And if we can, instead of reinventing the wheel, we can use the efficiencies already in place to fast track the um, trajectory to a net zero uh, lifestyle that we're looking to see, uh, aiming to hit the 2030 and the 2050 reduction targets, the financial services industry and banking is really, to me, the best suited in doing so. 
because if we can take the efficiencies in the financial system, creating wealth over a long time, and have that catering to the fragilities of the ecosystem, I think we will be in a good place sooner rather than later. For sure. Um, you're developing products for you know consumer level, enterprise level, and um, you're also developing an impact dashboard, which is a management reporting tool for the consumer credit portfolio that enables banks to aggregate the information provided to their consumers. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's the other side of the coin. The one side of the coin is the benefits for the user, understanding impact, measuring it, enabling reduction of the, of the said impact, as well as directing your funds, your investments, your savings into sustainable efforts, looking at traditional financial instruments that banks provide today, but potentially also additional uh, new financial instruments driven by the transparency opportunities that comes with the new technology that is today uh, disrupting the financial services industry. The other side of the coin is the upside for the banks that is also heavily regulatory driven or in the making that will um, ask for the banks to better understand what is it that our money is enabling really and looking at impact dashboards around their consumer credit portfolios, looking at what kind of consumption that their credits enable and the footprint of that consumption, making that language consistent and comparable in between geographies so that it becomes a true north and not just an opinion by someone somewhere, but this is a language and an infrastructure that becomes actionable also for the bank side in adhering to regulatory efforts but also to drive innovation in the ESG uh, financial instrument space, as well as at the other end of the scale, dialogue with their users, may it be enterprise or retail banking clients. Yeah, definitely. Because you know we've seen consumers demanding more and more of uh, climate actions from their banks and from their financial services providers and uh, really pushing forward this agenda. Um, and considering you're speaking to a lot of banks and collaborating with them, what's the demand you're seeing for a product like yours? And what are some of the biggest challenges in implementing that? Yeah, we see um, the challenges, or I think the challenges won't surprise anyone. It's as always, you know, the balancing the resources and, and trying to fit in within the tech backlog that is probably already existing. So we're we're, in order to facilitate the implementation side of things, we develop a portfolio of, of SDKs in order for banks to go to market fast and to enable them to integrate within their own applications uh, so that the tech burden is not so heavy. Um, the other side is that we see a tremendous uptick in interest. We see an uptick in the number of RFPs and RFIs going out on global level. We see geographies that has been lagging to some extent, uh, wakening up, coming to, to terms with the fact that this is going to be the new normal. Every transaction will carry information that is not only monetary, but also planetary. And those that understand this are the ones that aim to be the change makers rather than the change takers. For sure. And I'd like to hone in a little bit on the data aspect of this because you're, you know, as you mentioned, you're, you're, you're working with companies, you're working with banks, but also 
companies across multiple industries and geographies. And um, climate data is still quite fragmented. It's still, you know, a uh, segmented market. So um, what are the challenges on, you know, on that side of the business and kind of aggregating all that data and trying to put it together in a cohesive way? So that's, uh, I think, one of the most important cornerstones of this, because to me, it boils down to trust. So the data needs to be uh, treated with great integrity, both out of a precision perspective as well as of a privacy perspective. So that's one thing. Um, but we got to start somewhere, right? And starting with those um, considerations, I think, is uh, the most important one. Once you have that ambition clear, you can start communicating around what is possible today and what is possible tomorrow. And looking at what's possible today, so say on uh, financial and transaction level calculations, for example, as at economy, we calculate both transactions or your spend-based impact, as well as the product carbon footprints to the 2030 calculator, the lifestyle carbon footprint through our collaboration with the UN, that's live in 120 countries somewhat, and our corporate uh, calculation offering. But looking at the transaction side, what we do is we look at this out of a um, evolutionary perspective. So number one, calculate the carbon intensity per category. And the categories becomes more and more granular as more and more data becomes readily available. So that any PFM tool or, or any um, card system, which we calculate the impact of every transaction, not only card transactions, then you can see uh, connecting it to our API, asking the question, this spend in this category represents what CO2 footprint. So that's the data that we use working together with Standard & Poor's True Cost, scoring the carbon intensity by the reporting from the companies relevant to that category. So basically we have data representing 99% of global market cap, and this is the best in class financial market data used in multi-billion dollar transactions and decision-making at fingertips for everyday consumption of the consumers. How do you think about scope three emissions uh, when it comes to banks? Because that's in, in this whole conversation of uh, regulation and standardization and you know assessment of emissions, scope three it's just, uh, it seems to be the, the last bastion, right? Like it's just the, <laughs> the last mile. So yeah. uh, what are the latest developments there and how, I don't know, how soon should we expect some kind of methodology or way to, you know, do this more easily and not have it be such a, such a huge mountain to climb? Yeah, no, I'm happy to just ask that question because I completely agree. It's, it's like the final frontier. And to some extent, it comes down to, what is it that the banks enable out of a scope three perspective? And I, I, I tend for, for reasoning sake, I, and maybe it's not so fitting in the aftermath of a, of a pandemic, but I, I, I try, try to look at scope three like a virus, you know, and out of that perspective, it smittens you when you consume something of high impact, it drives your scope three as a company. So looking at what you see uh, in your reporting, you're going to be able to understand uh, your spend-based um, carbon screening of sorts. This is not uh, reporting, but just a heat map. The carbon screening, looking at where is the highest impact of your procurement. And that's 
spend-based, but if we go to the greenhouse gas protocol, uh, a vast majority of those categories are activity-based, right? So in order for us to make use of a uh, more precise carbon score per company so that we can uh, make relevant and better informed purchase decisions when choosing in between different providers, we need to do this in three steps. So the first step is to calculate all of the transactions or accounts payable, the books of the company to provide a, a heat map, the carbon screening side. And that gives both the, the vendor as well as the buyer an idea of the impact of, of this company's operations and, and how it can submit the new. Next step is to ex export the two spend-based relevant categories into a reporting tool that we're setting up together with leading banks around the world in regard of adding your activity-based impact factors. That can be done with precision through your auditors, or it can be done as a self-assessment tool. And then of course, discounted for as being a self-assessed uh, carbon footprint activity-based, where we, uh, make use of the understanding of your footprint in regard of the industry you're in, the energy mix in the area, what area you're working in, the size of your company, and so forth. And that is something that we are looking to uh, disclose uh, in a line with uh, COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh and reporting back on this project that I, that I find extremely interesting. The third component in that sense is adding additional sustainability criteria, such as the science-based targets initiative, what is this company doing outside of the actual calculable data? What are the ambitions here? Because what we see more and more is not only the data becoming more precise, but also the language around these claims. So looking at carbon offsetting, for example, being um, replaced by contributing beyond, not only looking at what is a theoretical net zero component, if you're only paying for carbon offsetting, is that really uh, an honest and sincere attempt? Or should we really be looking at the sustainability strategies of operations of the companies, looking how they can reduce impact and then potentially at the end of the day, offset for what they are not able to, to avoid? So both out of a data perspective and out of a language perspective, we're seeing higher levels of precision. And with higher levels of precision, to fully circle back to your question, we are better prepared to make use of understanding the scope three emissions. Wonderful. Yes, I, I totally agree that, you know, I think there is a slight over-reliance on carbon offsetting and kind of the boom that this market has been seeing um, this year uh, speaks to that. And, uh, but you know, we've also seen scientific reports that validated the strategy, but it also stressed that it should just be, um, you know, it probably is around five to 10% of our, uh, should be around five to 10% of our strategy. We shouldn't rely on it. It's, we will use it to get to net zero, but, um, it's it's more about those underlying strategies, as you said, of how do we actually have a sustainable business model rather than just purchasing carbon offsets. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's, it's a little bit, um, we know that uh, 
around 37% of companies today use quite vague claims in regard of conscious or eco-friendly or sustainable. And, and research also suggests that, that um, companies today actually only cut their carbon emissions with about 40% when they claim out of the 100% in the cuts that they claim. And carbon offsetting is the voluntary carbon offsetting market, you know, surpassing, I think it's like 1 billion US for the first time. Uh, and it's grown, like to your point, it's grown like 60% in, in, in little under a year. So today it's used as sales pitches for, you know, fly your own private and we'll carbon offset your footprint. And, you know, it's just, it's a little bit, the paradox is obvious. Yes, yes, definitely. I ask these questions also to a lot of the banks that offer carbon offsetting for consumers. So they would do the measurement and then uh, consumer could opt to offset. But I feel like we shouldn't not be encouraging people to spend more just because they can offset and feel better by themselves at the end of the day. We should change the way we think about consumption and our impact on the world. So I guess I'm a little worried that it will make people feel like we have this silver bullet that will take us out of the crisis because that just doesn't exist. But I think it's also a factor of the market still being at its beginning stages. So I think this is why we're also seeing greenwashing, not to mention the whole ESG debate. So I think a lot of it will get cleaned out as the market matures. If I, if I can build on that one second, it's just that it's easy to, to, to take an aim on carbon offsetting. And, and it sounds like I, I completely disagree and disapprove of, of all of carbon offsetting. That's not the case. I just think that there is a need for greater transparency. And to your point, this comes down to behavior change, not about footing the bill uh, from increased consumption, but understanding the effects and trying to reduce your impact. And as such, I think carbon offsetting is a beautiful educational tool because people understand, okay, I can plant a tree that the, the tree can over time have this positive contribution. But we must also remember that, you know, after when a tree dies and, and, and dissolves, the carbon is released again. So it's just like pausing, pausing our effects. And we need to be mindful of exactly that wording. There is no silver bullet. The only silver bullet, if there is any, is, I would say, action now and action now manifested in behavioral change. And there is an interesting, there's an interesting article around the results of the latest IPCC report. And the interpretation of that is that culture eats climate for breakfast. So, of course, that's, uh, that's playing with the words on, on strategy eating culture, culture eating strategy for breakfast. But Culture really does eat climate for breakfast. Unless we change how we behave, what we value, things we do and why we do them, you know, it's naive to think that we will see substantial change. Substantial change comes with changing something substantially and that being us and the way we do things. For sure. I, I also often think about how much of this responsibility are we placing on the consumer? And is that proportional to the actual impact and effect that the consumer has or can have versus a bank? Like, how can we make sure that we're putting that data in the right context so we understand how it impacts the world and what actions we need to take as a result of that analysis? Because I feel like we're relying a lot on the consumer education part, but what about the institutions? Yeah, no, to begin with, I completely 
agree with you that the disproportional um, weight on the individual consumer is something that we need to avoid in the role as a consumer. However, not in the role as a person or as a citizen or as a voter or as a CEO or as a politician or whatever educator, principal or teacher or journalist in those other roles that we all hold outside of consumption. I mean, we're people, we're not consumers. We're more than just what we buy. And in those roles, we need to step up to this challenge. And there, I think that it can never be disproportional. Then we need an all hands on deck to do exactly what we can and to, to direct our abilities into reducing impact. But to your, to your question then, what can we expect from institutions, financial institutions and other? I think the short answer is quite a lot. And the institutions that don't get this will be replaced by institutions that does. And that will be rapidly increasing. The greater the frustration becomes, the shorter the time to, to a credible you know, 1.5 or two degree increase becomes, the, the, the faster that replacement Will, uh, will be activated. So institutions that today that understand that they need to not only review their own operations, uh, the way they do things, uh, the way they, they handle credit and what they provide credit to, um, they will need to have that whole uh, puzzle in front of them because they are and have been for quite some time some of the greatest shapers, the greatest enablers of development in the world leading up to where we are at today. So we need, and coming back to my point, that's why we need them and we need their expertise and we need the power of the financial institutions to enable this transition as well. So we've had a transition enabling, you know, globalization, digitalization, industrialization, uh, building, the abilities of banking. Now we have to look at it out of a sustainability station uh, shift, making use of a more aligned, um, aligned behavior pattern in line with what the resources we have at hand so that we're not overspending, making use of one, two, three, four, or five planets per year at the, at the worst. And that's where financial institutions come in. They have the language. They have the funds, they have the network, they have the tech, but more importantly than that, I believe that they also have a fundamental trust from each and every one that if you put them, your money into a bank account, you're pretty sure that that money will still be there the day after. And not many institutions uh, have the same trust and trust is what is needed in order to engage everyone to participate in contributing to the journey to a net zero economy. Yeah, definitely. And considering all the resources that you've mentioned that the sector has, and then you pair those with the booming climate tech startup sector, there's just so many startups entering the market to create new ways for businesses of all sizes and all industries to manage carbon emissions, monitoring, reporting, and ultimately drive emissions down. So what's the potential that we could unlock here? in the future? What, how do you think having access to more carbon-related data and all of these insights will change the finance sector going forward? I think it, the, the accessibility, the readily access, accessibility to comparable data is going to increase the courage 
in the financial sector because it's, it's risk avert to begin with. And that's something we pay for them to be. So we shouldn't expect anything less. But at the economy, we're not so interested in doing what's easy. Doing what's easy is never hard. But doing the hard things is what's required. And that's where you want to be. That's why we uh, early on started working with MasterCard as one of our partners, implementing our methodology in their global carbon, uh, their global transaction platform, adding carbon as a component to every transaction. If someone had told me that five years ago, I would like, nah, I mean, who would, who would do such a thing? How would MasterCard dare to do that? Now, you know, a few years later, that's a natural state of things. And MasterCard has shown the way in this, not only can this be done, but this is how you can do it. And that's where data becomes readily available. It becomes reliable and it becomes an indicator of the way for, and the better the data gets, the more granular the data gets, the more democratized the data gets, the more forceful, the reduction target the reduction will be able to be the more precise the individual as well as institutional activities will be able to be and i think this is all about shaping a new relationship shaping a new relationship between the clients and the financial institutions that are data-based insight driven by 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 and substantiated by data and that relationship corresponds well not only with the financial institution, but also with the limited resources that we have to play with. And they are, uh, in all fairness, not that limited. It's their behavior that is completely bananas. But if we're looking at that, that relationship, planet, person, and financial institution, it's the powerful troika of, of, um, of uh, opportunity that I think is going to be critical uh, in driving this change with the data as the very rocket fuel, to, to use a very bad symbolic metaphor, uh, to propel that to propel that forward fast. You know, of course, that would be a, a very environmentally friendly fuel. Yes, a very an, an elect an electric rocket that's electric uh, rocket, yeah. Yes, with that's fueled with clean energy. <laughs> Just has an asterisk. Exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like Elon Musk, but but not at all yes exactly uh well i don't know we're probably gonna see more of those rockets right because everybody's crazy about these rockets nowadays when yeah. we have some bigger fish to fry but mm -hmm. um in any case you know with this issue of uh sustainability and uh, i actually want to talk to you about esg as well because it's you know starting to become uh quite divisive i feel and even politicized in some places mm -hmm. including the u.s and um, then you also have the war in Ukraine, which is adding to the pressure regarding mm -hmm. the investments in the energy sector. And I guess, you know, like value aligned capitalism, if that thing actually exists. Um, mm -hmm. So considering this whole debate around ESG standards and climate risk reporting, what's your perspective on these on these topics? Like, what are we really fighting each other about? That's a very, I think that's a very good point. Um, what in the world, isn't there better things to do than uh, just challenging each other over the wording. And I'm not trying to reduce the ESG topic and, and the definitions out of a, 
um, investment perspective and people making money on ESG definitions that are not very ESG relevant. But I think there's two things that are important here. One is the social component. When we discuss ESG today, most of the people tend to think of the environmental component, but the social be equally as much represented and equally as much respected. Without the social component, the environmental component will not succeed. Uh, and that's why we are to some part also discussing beyond financial inclusion, we're looking at climate inclusion. How can we have a language, as I said before, a language that could be understood by everyone so that everyone can contribute? How can we have rating systems that actually uh, matters in regard to the ESG scoring and the opportunities and the responsibilities of the investment rather than just the growth and the value creation in in regard of uh, the the price going up on an underlying asset that remains the same ESG capabilities as it had at half the price so there is a few components that needs to come into play with that the social one being the most important one and so far i think that we're doing a really uh, not good enough job in combining the the e and the s the second thing that you that you highlight that i think is also uh, in the context of the war on ukraine it's very hard to call anything a benefit or or, or a positive side effect but as it is uh, horrible in every sense of the word but if we look at what Putin has done for the growth of well-distributed renewable energy sources, uh, especially in Europe, it's this similar the the priority of military investments today. You can buy a windmill or a solar panel, or you can buy a Stinger missile, uh, because what's the purpose in 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 defending yourself if you're feeding the one attacking you with funding their efforts through fossil fuel dependencies? So if there's anything that has been shown by this is that this transition can be faster than we have ever expected for reasons that are obvious and obviously as horrible as, as everyone can imagine. So to that point, we see two things, language and action. Language on the ESG front, getting ESG right is going to be extremely important, but getting the E and S combined is going to be at core of that importance. And on the action side, we see the effects of COVID, we see the effects of the war on Ukraine. Obviously we can change. It's bullshit that we can't change our behavior. We can do it. And with COVID, it was obvious. And with, with, with the, the war on Ukraine, that's also obvious. What we need to have is help, not in understanding impact. I think everyone can agree on the, the, the negative impact that we want to avoid. What we need to understand is the time to impact and that time component, I don't think we're equally as good at understanding. To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to tearsheet.co. If you want to know more about the intersection of finance and sustainability, you can subscribe to our free green finance newsletter in your inbox every other week to get more insights and research into this topic. That's also where I'll be featuring every new Green Finance podcast episode. So sign up to stay up to date with all of our content. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Green Finance podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks. So I'll see you at the next one.